Lord, we live in a day and age where people want to divide us, want to pull us, Lord, to disunity. But today, as we focus on what it means to have the discipline of being unified, God, and we only know that we can do that with your help, we ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us, would engage with us, Lord, as we sit at your feet and hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is week two of our series on unity. And last week, Pastor Jet started with talking about unity happens when we spend time with Jesus and time with others, with Jesus with us. And it helps us to be unified and uh, come together as one. Well, today we're going to talk about unity as it's played out with discipline. And like I said earlier, earlier, a couple months ago, we started planning this series and started talking about what topic each of us got. And I thought, I get discipline? Who wants to get up and talk about discipline? We never like wake up and say, boy, I just can't wait to talk about that word and, and, and think about that. But as I looked into God's word and saw he has so much, especially as a gift for us when it comes to talking about discipline, unity and discipline. So to get us thinking about this, I brought some toilet paper. Why not? Now, toilet paper was super, super popular about six months ago. Everybody was wanting some of this, and we needed discipline to be patient, not be hoarders, to love people as we're waiting in line at 6 a.m. at Kroger's or wherever to see if they have some really cheap toilet paper, but at least it's toilet paper. Well, I have a different question for you. In fact, um, I know that when my son gets back, actually, from tech, he's going to find out his closet is a toilet paper holding closet now. (laughs) So I can't go to Costco and get milk and bread and think, Oh, there's some toilet paper just in case round two comes, right? I got it. So when you go to the bathroom, hopefully you notice this is there. When you go to the, to the restroom and you think about using toilet paper and you go to look, I want to take a survey here. Now, if you're comfortable to raise your hands when I ask you this question, how many of you believe that toilet paper should be facing you rolling this way when you get it? Raise your hand. Okay, very similar to the other services. How many of you firmly believe that when you sit down and look to the toilet paper on your right, that it should be going towards the wall? Raise your hand. Wow, it has tripled in number compared to the other services. Well, I have to tell you that the people who just raised their hand, the four or five, they're so smart that they're probably the right ones. Y'all have to yield to them. Here's a third option. You probably didn't think about it. a third option. What do you hold it like this? Yeah, yeah. Someone's sitting on top there. They're, you know, no, the third option. How many of you go to the restroom and you've never noticed the difference? There, we have to be one or two at each service. Yeah, y'all are probably the most peace-filled. You could get up here and give the message. I'm telling you. Now I could drill down on this, and I could literally start embarrassing people, trying to tell you who we think is right and wrong. And I could really start uh, causing disunity between you, believe it or not, between you online. I could cause disunity over something as mundane and silly as toilet paper, right? I could do that right now. I'm not. But think about this. Something as goofy as toilet paper we could argue over. We can be divided over. And I'm telling you, that's where we are today as a nation, as a people. That we will, the people that want to control will find anything to divide you from your spouse, divide you from your children, your work, your neighbors, your church. 
In fact, think of how bad it's, it's become. In January, there were probably people that you were real tight with. And now you may still talk with them, but you probably look at them with great suspicion. They're one of those that you think we should have never shut down. We should have shut down, they think. You're one of those, why do we have to wear masks? And they're all like, I cannot believe you're not wearing a mask. They're one of those, I will never get a vaccine. You're like, bring it on. I'm going to take all three of them at the same time. Give me the cocktail. Think about COVID. This is the real thing right now. And we are so divided over something that we need to be unified on. In fact, I believe that most of you wake up and, you, and, and I would guess that you have a good heart and you're like, okay, I am going for unity today. I'm going for peace. You never get up and say, I'm going towards disunity. I can't, can't wait to see how much chaos I'm going to cause in my, in my world today. We don't think that way, but here's the truth. We naturally are going from unity to disunity. And we see that no more than in a society that is eight days away from, nine days away from an election. I mean, it's, it's what we live. And you know what? The devil is having a heyday with this. He wants nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy, the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John. He wants nothing more than to divide you from the ones that you love the most. And today, we're going to talk about how discipline can actually help us be unified. It's a great gift from God. In fact, God has this discipline of unity on his heart. He revealed this with his son, Jesus. You're going to notice that in this mini sermon series, these three weeks, that we will go to different parts of Scripture, but we're going to start with a reading from John 17. And today, when we do these two verses from John 17, I want you to hear Jesus' heart. Because remember, the context here, Jesus is in his last breathing day on this earth before his crucifixion. And he is meeting with his disciples. He is talking with them. He is praying to God the Father, and here is what's on his heart, starting in verse 20. He says this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe. That's you. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for you. He says, I also pray for those who will believe. That's you. Those who will believe in me through their message, the message of of Jesus, that all of them, and here's what he's praying for, that all of them, that's you, may be one. Father, just as you are in me, I am in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Look how important this is. Jesus could have prayed for thousands of things, but he prayed at the end that we would be unified. And here's the great reason. Why? So that a world who is marred in disunity, in anger, in vehement opposition to one another in different camps, so that that world can look at your unique God-given gift of unity and say, wow, I believe that Jesus is real. I believe they have something that I wish I had. And notice how high of a standard. Jesus sets the bar super high. What type of unity is he talking about? He's not talking about just, well, we go to the same church together. Well, we live in the same house. We exist. We, you know, we suffer through with each other. That's not what he's talking about. He says, look at, look at close. He says, Father, I pray that they may be one 
just as you are in me and I am in you. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Trinity right there. He says, the unity that I pray for for you is that you would be like me, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That we all have our roles, right? The Father is the creator and the sustainer, the one that sustains life. We have the Son, part of the Trinity. His work is to save us, give us life. And then there's the Holy Spirit, and he has quite a job. He's like the neglected one we don't talk about a lot, but man, he like puts faith in us. He helps us through this life. He gives us wisdom. He kind of sees us through to the end until we do see God the Father face to face someday after our last breath. And yet all these different roles that they have, they are super unified because they have that one, one complete purpose. This is what Jesus wants for you, your church family, your family, the people that are in your circles. This is what Jesus' view would be for our country. <laughs> oh, how far away we are from that. If there's ever a day and a season that we need Jesus, it's right now. Jesus desires unity, but it takes discipline. He desires unity, but it takes discipline. Now, I want to unpack this word before we get into Hebrews chapter 12, because we're going to talk about discipline a lot, but we want to know what exactly part of discipline are we talking about? Because when you, when you think of discipline, there's a couple ways you can view this word. The word in the Greek that's used here in, in Hebrews, the word discipline, actually is padaya. And the coolest thing about this is that the word padaya is also the root word that the Bible uses when it talks about disciple. Or discipleship. So think about it. When you are a disciple of a certain thought or a belief or a disciple of a certain person, you are trying to train yourself to think that way or to go in that direction, right? And the way that you get to, from point A to point B to the thinking that you want to think like, to the person that you want to be like, the one you want to follow, you have to do it through discipline. And discipline comes in two ways, either being disciplined by someone else, in this case we're going to talk about God disciplines us, or setting certain behaviors and practices up that you do self-discipline. And we're going to unpack both of those. But here's some of the definitions that may help you as you think about this. Discipline is the cultivation of the mind and morals, sometimes through punishment or hard sufferings. Another definition I love in the, in the Bible is it's the instruction to increase a certain virtue. Maybe the virtue that we're talking about today fits in well, the virtue of unity. So that you are being disciplined so that you can be more unified with Jesus and those he puts around you. So let's jump into it. And what I'm going to do as I pack, unpack these seven verses, I'm going to start in the middle with Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. And here's why we're doing this. We're doing this because I think verse 14 gives us an overview of what all these verses are pointing to. So here's what verse 14 it says. It says, make every effort to do this, to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So I like what this says. It says, make every effort to live in peace. Well, yeah, Lord, I try to do that. I try to wake up and think, how can I have peace with those around me? But it's really hard. But notice what it says. To live in peace with everyone and be holy. 
Now, you don't have to look far into Scripture to see whenever we're called to be holy, we realize very quickly that we cannot be holy on our own. First of all, holy is not a word we go around using all the time. Holy is basically without sin, without blemish, to be more godlike. That's a good definition of it, according to the Bible. And so if you want to be more holy, we know that we can't do this on our own. This has to be a gift from God as we're with Him, as the Holy Spirit helps us be more holy. In fact, to take a little pause right here, this Sunday in the church year around the world, non-Catholics are celebrating what's called Reformation. And what is Reformation? This was 503 years ago, a guy named Martin Luther, that's why we, our church is Lutheran Church, Martin Luther was looking at his Bible, and very simply, he realized the church at that time was teaching things that were not of what the Bible was teaching. And he came up with all of these debating topics and said, we need to talk about this church, because I believe when I read my Bible, this is what God says to me, and you're telling me something different. And one of the biggest sticking points for Luther and all his followers and for us today is that we believe that there is nothing we can do to become more holy or make God love us more. It only happens through the grace, the gift, free gift of God putting his son on the cross, putting what Jesus gained for us on the cross inside of us as a gift called faith and the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. And so when it says, make every effort to live in peace, through holiness, this peace will not come of yourself. It has to come through the holiness that God gives us. Therefore, when we look in the world, it makes sense that people are going from unity to disunity. It makes sense that they're trying to devour each other because they don't have the one place where they can find that true peace. And you know, peace is another word for unity. When you have peace with an idea, a situation, a person, or a group, you are unified to some extent. You're like, you know what? I might not agree on everything, but we are at peace. There's a unity that we have. And that only comes through the holiness of God living inside of you. Does it make sense now? Let's go a little further. He says, endure. The writer says, endure hardship as discipline. Now I want to pause right here. Notice I said the writer of Hebrews. The writer, we believe, the author, we believe, is Peter. There's nothing in the book of Hebrews that says, hey, I wrote this, Paul, Peter, you name it. But when we look at, script, at the, the vocabulary of, of the book of Hebrews, it's very similar to First and Second Peter. And so we believe that Peter wrote this. Now, if you want to take Peter, this guy was a mess. This guy was messing up all the time. I mean, in the same breath, when he confessed that Jesus was Lord, he then disagreed with Jesus, and Jesus said, well, get behind me, Satan. The guy denied Jesus three times. The guy was making all these mistakes. And you know how Jesus remedied this? He disciplined him. He says, you're going to have to go through some of this suffering right now, Peter, emotional, physical, you name it, but I have something better for you. So this is what Peter writes. He says, endure these hardships as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what children are not discipled by their fathers? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate true sons or daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? We had fathers, maybe mothers or grandmothers, 
that disciplined us and we respected them for it. How many of y'all ever seen this? That is a spatula and that is used traditionally to turn eggs over or to move bacon around and to spank people with. When I was growing up, I was a good boy. My cousin wasn't. I'm not going to tell you which cousin. I'm going to try to make this more broad since this is on the internet. I don't want to bust anybody out. But, you know, when I was younger, I was still in that generation where the parents and grandparents would take that Proverbs, uh, I think it's Proverbs 18, it says, spare the rod, spoil the child. And so even some still practice this today. Unfortunately, when people get spanking, sometimes it goes too far. And there's a whole debate these days about child abuse, you name it. We're not going to debate that today. I'm just going to tell you what happened in my life. When I was little, they say, wait till your dad gets home. And dad wore one of those uh, leather 1970s belts with double holes in them with a big belt buckle, right? And he would get home with those bell-bottom blue jeans and rip that thing off. Ho, 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 dad's home. I had a very loving dad. In fact, I do not, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. I'm, I'm preaching. I got to tell the truth. I'm going to tell you, I don't know that I was ever touched by dad's belt. But he did sometimes when my cousin and I, he would take it off. Don't make me use this. He would say, straighten up and fly right. I don't know what that means. But one time, when dad wasn't home, and there was other people around, other family uh, members, and my cousin was acting up, I saw him get disciplined by other family members. And at first, they would use a wooden spoon on him, and it just wasn't working anymore. So as he got a little bigger, they decided, we're going to use this spatula. And one time I was hiding, and I remember uh, seeing him uh, around the corner, and they started, you know, made him take his pants down with his spatula, making this bad noise. And all of a sudden, he started laughing. I thought, oh, this is not going well. And they could they get harder and harder. And then the spatula broke, and I started laughing. Like, oh, and then I thought, I better run, because I'm going to get the end of the spatula in a second here. You know, that method of discipline kind of worked, but it didn't. It literally broke. God's discipline is different than that, and it works. It doesn't break, but sometimes it will break us so that he can build us back up. I want you to, to look closely here when it says endure, endure hardships as discipline. The Bible is not telling us that every hardship we go through has to be disciplined from God. Sometimes it's just because we made a dumb, foolish mistake. Sometimes we go through hardship because we have made a terrible choice like getting a spatula on the bottom. But sometimes you're keen enough to kind of pause and say, you know, I think God is teaching me something through here, through this situation. And instead of saying, well, why, God? Why are you disciplining me? Maybe we should ask a different question and say, what, God, what are you teaching me through this discipline? And usually what it is, it's it's humility. So I can be humbled Realize I don't have it all together. Realize that I'm not all that in a box of chocolates. Realize that I may be wrong. And that through that humbling, God can help unify me with him and other people. And maybe I can see their point of view. And maybe they are right to some extent. This is how it all works together. So going a little uh, further, the, the scripture kind of speaks to the spatula. It says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. <laughs> might be funny, but it's not pleasant, but painful. 
Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness. And here's that word peace again. Peace or the unity that comes through peace for those who have been trained by it. How many people do you work with, do you live with in the world, you're like, I know that they had some good discipline in their life. I can see they're well-mannered. They've been taught to show up on time. When they say they're going to do something, they'll do it. Yeah, that's what this scripture's talking about. We're disciplined, which doesn't seem good at the time. You just, come on, leave me alone. Then you realize, wow, there's actually a fruit of righteousness here. There's some blessings that come from this discipline, especially the gift of unity. I want to uh, jump to one last verse here from this text, and it says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, when I first read this verse, I thought, well, I don't want to miss the grace of God. I think what it's pointing to more specifically is see that nobody misses the grace of God. That means those around you. How many times do you think you're so right and you can't believe they think that way and that group is wrong that they will in no way be able to experience the, the grace of God coming through you? It happens, as Scripture says, that because we let this bitter root grow inside. When that is watered and nursed, that, that bitter root, that turns into something called resentment. And usually resentments, they're only hurting you. Most other people don't even know you have all this inside that's bringing turmoil. And you want that peace. You want that unity. How does Scripture tell us? Give grace. Give that undeserved love, that mercy. Have grace and think, well, maybe they've gone through this. Maybe they think this way because this is how they grew up. Maybe this is all they know. Now, you don't have to agree with everybody, but at least give some grace so that no bitter root grows up and unity happens. I'm going to jump over to, to one verse from the missionary Paul. He wrote this to a young missionary named Timothy. And he says this, physical training, right? The discipline of physical training, such as exercising on a regular basis, doing something like that. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promises for both the present life and the one to come. What is godliness again? This is unity. Godliness is the unity that we find in the Trinity. So it's great to exercise and to, to do disciplines, like maybe you're going to eat better and exercise, do right. But what is even more valuable, Paul is saying, is that the unity that you find in godliness, this idea that when you follow God and allow him to do what he's going to do, there's something even greater that's going to be not just for this life, but the next as well. Personal discipline opportunities. There's personal discipline opportunities you can set in motion this week. And here's very quickly four of them I want to share with you. The first thing is this. Practice repentance. If you want to, want to understand God's discipline, practice repentance. Say, I could be wrong. I not only am sorry for this, but God, I want to turn. The word repentance actually means to turn. I want to turn from this. It, it's amazing. The more you think about it, the more uh, humble you'll become. And you realize, wow, I do not have it all together, just like the people that I'm so divided against. Number two is this, regularly read the Bible. Very simply, I cannot tell you enough how good it is to read your Bible. 
When you start anywhere in there, you can do the Psalms, Philippians, you name it, you start reading your Bible, God will speak into your heart. And he will start to dismantle the arguments that you have of why those people or that group are so bad. And you'll start to realize he created them too. He wants them not to miss out on the grace that he has for them too. The third thing is this, pray. If you don't know what to do and you're like, I just, I'm reading the Bible, I'm so frustrated, pray. Just talk with your heavenly father. Allow him to work this in your life. And the final one is this, offer more grace than judgment. Offer more grace than judgment. At the end of my first year of seminary, we had a dean called Dean, uh, dean Smith, and he was leaving the seminary as dean to be a senior pastor of a big church in the St. Louis area. And I love this guy, man. It was my first year of seminary. He was a great guy, would have beers with us. I mean, just a really cool guy. And he was giving his last message at the chapel. None of us wanted to miss it. Now, I know that that y'all listen to our sermons, but there's not a lot you will remember from me, John, and Jet. There'll be some things like, oh, remember that time you had toilet paper up there? Yeah, well, what's, what's the rest of the message, right? Remember when you had ketchup up there? Like, yeah, but there's one thing that I remember from Dean Smith's last message, and it was this. He, he paused and he looked at us and he said, gentlemen, always err on the side of grace. Always err on the side of Grace. This world does not need more judgment from you. When people are honest with themselves and they see where they're going, they're going to they're have that conviction happen. What we need is to show more grace. It doesn't mean that we're not honest with people. It doesn't mean that we don't tell them the truth. It doesn't mean that we don't share, we share scripture. We tell them the truth. We're honest. But what it does mean is this. I can try to see where they're coming from and see how they got from here to there, and try to love them from there to Jesus. That's unity for our fellow human being. That's loving them just like Jesus loves them.